Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. It's a brand new week around Australia and it's great to be on the air here on starterfm.com.au. Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, we're also, of course, on the iHeartRadio platform. Maybe you're listening to us on TuneIn. Uh, you can download their app as well. Uh, and, of course, we're on the Prawncast a little later in the day as well. Um, and the links uh, to Spotify and uh, RSS are always up on my Facebook page. Give us a like and follow there. Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, we have to thank our sponsor, Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Now, very soon I'm going to catch up with an old friend of the program and somebody who uh, I'm speaking to, the, to for the first time as a federal senator, um, David Shoebridge. David and I uh, used to speak regularly every Monday morning at the old joint um, when he was a, a New South Wales MP. And now David, I think, is one of the best politicians of holding, you know, he's from the Greens, I understand that. Uh, but of course, as we know, the Greens, they're progressive. Uh, but David's sort of not one of those, you know, too far gone climate alarmists that sometimes Greens are accused of being. What I like most about David Shoebridge is his uh, unwavering hard work and diligence in supporting anti-corruption measures. Now, if it wasn't for the wonderful work done by David Shoebridge in particular, we probably would still see Gladys Berejiklian in as New South Wales Premier and highly likely that John Barillaro uh, would still be the deputy. Anyway, David's done a lot of work in order to uh, expose alleged, I need to throw that in, that word, alleged corruption and wrongdoing and misappropriation of government money uh, by our politicians. He's done it in New South Wales, and that's why I welcomed his addition as a federal senator. Uh, He and his other senators, including many on the crossbench, are very powerful now. They will hold the balance of power. So they need to work constructively with Anthony Albanese's government. And Albo knows that. Now, one of the the key measures that they are looking to get done before the end of this year is the Federal Independent uh, Commission Against Corruption, or if you like, a National Integrity Commission. So I'm I'm in a wide-ranging chat this morning. I'll speak to David Shoebridge very soon. And I want to ask him about um, what he said on the weekend in relation to how negotiations are going with the Albanese government and the crossbenchers on establishing a federal ICAC. We'll talk about that and the importance that he and other senators have in perhaps making Australia more progressive. You know, we, we are going to see big changes in policy in relation to climate change, in relation to social justice in relation to immigration and a number of other issues that, well, previously were probably, I think, in my opinion, only neglected by the previous Conservative government. Anyway, we'll speak to David Shoebridge. He's my interview this morning and that's coming up very soon. I'll check out the latest on industrial chaos in New South Wales. Uh, The RBTU, the uh, Rail, Bus and Tram Union, had a bit of a win late last week. with the uh, independent umpire declaring that their strike action was not illegal. So where to? Will it mean more strike action this week? Well, at this stage, nothing has been announced. Unfortunately, um, as the cleanup continues from the flooding, we had a tragic helicopter accident over the weekend which claimed the life of, uh, of a man who's done much for his community, in particular around the Hawkesbury region. I'll tell you about that story. I'll dive into the latest uh, politics in New South Wales, perhaps. The former Transport Minister, Andrew Constance, could very well end up in the Senate's 
at a federal level. I'll talk about that story coming up. Um, Also, importantly, finally, Grace Tame and her foundation are now legally a charity which means she can continue to raise money in order to provide awareness for sexual abuse against women around Australia. So that's on the way. We'll go through that. The latest COVID news as well. And unfortunately, um, it's not just primary and secondary teachers that are missing in action at the moment, but there's problems within our childcare sector as well. And I'll give you the latest information on that. So a busy program on the way. As always, we love getting your feedback. You can please give us a follow on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, Subscribe to us on YouTube. And of course, catch the Prawncast, the podcast, a little later today, which will be uploaded on the Facebook page. Okay, we'll check the news every half hour. Thanks to our friends at Air News. And some great music to kickstart the working week. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back to the program Monday morning, all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, I have to say for the first time, not that he's a a first-timer on this program, I've spoken to David Shoebridge, oh, gee whiz, on a number of occasions over the years, but never before as a senator. Senator Shoebridge, good morning to you. How are you? <laughs> good, thanks, Marcus. David still works perfectly fine, but uh, no, it's good to be up and running. You know, have the um, feet under the desk, have the office running, and uh, looking forward to what we can do federal. Yeah, well, congratulations. Um, I mean, it was a big campaign, as you acknowledged, um, and you've hit the ground running with constructive engagement with the new Labor government and crossbench on the shape of uh, the new Federal Independent Commission Against Corruption to be in place, hopefully, later this year. You and I, over the years, have discussed many issues as to why we should have a Federal Integrity Commission in place. Uh, You and I, of course, discussed uh, a number of goings-on within New South Wales politics and um, an ICAC there. Um, it all hit a crescendo, of course, with uh, uh, with the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian last year. But now, I, look, I have to say it's the even bigger league. So the Greens are pushing to widen the integrity body's power. So what's new here, David? Um, well, first of all, I think one of the uh, one of the good things about having come out of New South Wales politics, as you would know, Marcus, is you you get a good grounding in political corruption in New South Wales. You know, but it does world class political corruption, and yeah. um, so it gives you a good a good, I think, a really excellent set of principles to take federally and have a look at what works and what doesn't work at a state level. So, first of all. There is genuinely good faith um, consultation and ha- happening at the moment between right. the, the new Labor um, Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, um, the Greens and the Independents on the crossbench. And, of course, you know, to get this legislation through the Senate, it requires the Greens to support it. Um, we have the balance of power there. Um, and um, and we want to use that constructively in this space. And... and 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 I'm what I'm hopeful for is that we can move Labor's current position, which would produce an, an adequate federal ICAC, yeah, to where it needs to be to have a genuinely world class um, uh, anti corruption body. And you know, I can go through and give you just some of the highlights about where where I think we need to be moving Labor to to, to get up to what I think millions of people voted for. Yeah, please. And, yeah. So I mean, the first is. Um, the, the Labor's indicated the threshold they want for the jurisdiction is for serious um, and systemic corruption. They want it to be investigating only serious and systemic corruption. And and to be quite frank, I mean, if, if you think about how most investigations happen, you don't know at the start where it's going to lead. Yeah. Um, I can recall, I remember speaking with you about it, Marcus, when I first started running to ground this huge pork barrel in New South Wales called Stronger Communities. It ended yes. up being like 250-odd million dollars. 252, um, I think, David, to yeah, be precise. Indeed, indeed. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, and, and so I first found out about it through one of those 252 million, and I had a concerned resident trying to work out why a million dollars was being 
was being dropped on a perfectly nice, um, much community-loved uh, local oval on the north side of Sydney. Yeah. And, and she said, look, you know, our local council has all sorts of really serious needs. Why, what, why, why did they get a million dollars here? It doesn't seem right. Can you find out about it? Yeah. And, and it's only when you start pulling on the thread that you suddenly realise it wasn't just one oval, you know, it was uh, 252 times that in coalition seats um, being lavished in this big pork barrel. So so if the test is serious and, and systemic, well then, and, and if that's the test before ICAC can start issuing subpoenas and forcing the release of documents, they'll never unravel those kinds of things. Of course. That they need, yeah, they need to have a much more open jurisdiction. And... And also serious and systemic. I mean, at a minimum, it should be serious or systemic because what we don't want is we don't want, you know, somebody being targeted by ICAC and then them running off to the federal court and saying, oh, you can't target me. This might be serious corruption, but it's not systemic. You know, that's there's all sorts of problems with that threshold for Labor. And I think I think there's going to be movement there. Okay. Um, well, in consultation with stakeholders, MPs and senators, the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus, I mean, you're on the same page initially here, but he suggested the government will improve protections for whistleblowers, um, but there's sort of been a, a bit of a, uh, a reluctance to establish a whistleblower protection commissioner, another feature of the Helen Haynes bill that was uh, previously brought up in the last parliament by that independent Helen Haynes. I mean, look, if we're going to have any federal uh, corruption watchdog or integrity commission, there needs to be protections in place, I'm sure, you'd agree, for whistleblowers. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what we said to Dreyfus last week in some open correspondence yeah. we sent to you. Okay. We, you know, you, you can have the best ICAC in the world, but if anybody who goes to it goes back to the office and has their head chopped off by their boss mm. as a whistleblower, then um, it's really not going to get the, the flow of informa information that's needed to, to clean up governments, you know, going back and going forward. So we've been very clear that we want in this bill – um, some seriously improved whistleblower protections. And, and I mean, again, here we have some good news. Um, yeah. Yes, Payne's bill had a whistleblower commissioner in it, but a, a 2019 federal integrity bill that the Greens brought to the federal parliament and actually passed the Senate with Labor's support, mm. that was done by my predecessor in this space, Larissa Waters, Yeah, that had a whistleblower commissioner and a whistleblower's commission in it. So you have some an agency, if you like, whose job is to actually protect whistleblowers and, and ensure that they, they aren't targeted. And if if they are targeted, they've got someone in their corner to help them out. So, look, you know, that, that I think is, 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 a, is an area of ongoing discussion with Labor. They, I think they would like to see that bounced off into another bill next year. Um, we are hoping to bring it forward and continue to work with other stakeholders to, to make it a core part of this ICAC bill. And, and at a very minimum, we would need to make sure that the whistleblower protections for anyone coming to the ICAC, even if we can't get it for everybody at this point, well, the I whistleblower mean, protections for everyone coming to ICAC are absolutely world class. You've said this new parliament has now a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create an independent commission against corruption or a, a federal integrity commission that will future-proof the institution from governments yep. that might not be so keen on scrutiny. One of the, the big criticisms of ICAC in New South Wales that you and I also discussed previously was the fact that it was relied upon state government funding. So those that were in power, perhaps being investigated, uh, they pulled the purse strings. Now, you <laughs> want something that's, uh, I guess, financially independent of government. Yeah, and in fact, you know, you, you can't be independent if the person or the or the body that you're investigating is holding the purse strings. Purse yeah. strings, you know, <laughs> federal ICAC, it's the, the New South Wales ICAC, was going down cap in hand to the then Berejiklian government and saying, please, sir, can we have some more? And um, please, ma'am, can we have some more? And mm. and it turns out at the same time, both the ICAC and the Berejiklian government knew that they were um, engaged in a sort of very, very um, close scrutiny of that Premier's behaviour, that former Premier's behaviour and, and her former partner's behaviour and people very close to her and... The conflict of interest is just so obvious. I, I did a fair bit of work at this at a state level. We delivered two reports from the Public Accountability Commission that I chaired, and 
And in the middle of those, the New South Wales Auditor General delivered her own report, a really quality report on how to um, how to how to ensure that all the integrity integrity agencies have independent funding. And and for me, that's a pretty good blueprint. And what that says is, instead of the ICAC, state or federal, going cap in hand to the government and the treasurer and saying, "Please, please, can I have a few few dollars to investigate you?" that they take their budget pitches to a cross-party um, parliamentary committee, which has a non-government majority on it. Then there's a whole lot of transparency. You see exactly what they want in their budget. Sure. Then that committee analyses it with some expo- expert assistance and makes a recommendation to government. And then everybody can see what's needed. And then, and then if the government doesn't put it in the budget, they have to explain why they didn't put it in the budget, and then the parliament has a chance to amend the budget. And I can tell you now... We would use our power in the upper house to work with um, a non-government majority to ensure that any future ICAC had it, had the funding that it needs. And you can see how that kind of transparency um, makes an organisation far more independent. Well, when will you get the opportunity? Uh, when does Parliament and when will the upper house, uh, the House of Representatives, and the and the Senate return to Canberra? What's that date again that you will start to be able Tw- to? Twenty sixth of July is when the circus kicks right. off. All right. Okay. Sixteen, fifteen days from today. Yes, and uh, so look, what what's the the the, the time frame that that um the government's talking about, and they've been quite open about it, um, the, the Attorney-General, yeah. is to do more of this kind of consultation. We had a consultation session last week. Myself and some of the, um, the, the, other, some of the independents had a very fruitful um, roundtable with the Attorney last week. I think there, there's likely to be, you know, maybe one or two more of those. Um, we, we obviously sent correspondence to try and make it very clear where we wanted to go so that everybody there's no no you know misapprehension about what our position is sure I, I, my understanding is that with a bit more of that kind of consultation the government wants to bring a bill into parliament mm-hmm. in time for it to go off to again a cross-party committee um, to actually review the bill in detail the, the, the draft legislation in detail. And then we can take it through in the last few weeks of right. this sitting year and actually have it in place. So that's the time frame. Mm. And there's still plenty of space, I hope, for ongoing, you know, bit of push and shove um, and hopefully a, a progressive majority in Parliament delivering the best ICAC we can by the well, end that, of the year. Well, I mean, that's, I think, what uh, Australians wanted. I think they made that pretty clear in the uh, the recent election. You say you're ready to take on these big issues. Uh, now, obviously, um, the federal ICAC is certainly high on your wish list, but you also talk about other big issues like climate change and social justice. Uh, you're in Canberra now, and, uh, I mean, these are important uh, aspects of Australian society that do need to be looked at under a new microscope, given uh, that we've uh, kind of pushed some of the older conservative viewpoints, which you and I would agree have been a little bit prehistoric in a number of these areas. We've kind of pushed them aside a little bit, so I do look forward to seeing a more progressive Australian Parliament in both houses. Moving forward, David. Yeah, well, I mean, that is absolutely the hope. We now have um, a progressive majority in the Senate and yeah. a couple of different ways. I mean, um, the Greens plus Jackie Lambie or one of the Jackie Lambie crew or the mm-hmm. Greens plus David Pocock. Um, and there you have on, on, you know, on a pretty much a raft of progressive legislation, a super progressive pathway for Labor mm-hmm. to take its legislation through the Senate. And and that is a pretty fundamental change from where the Senate was before this election. Yep. You know, con- controlled really by a conservative crossbench and, and you know, used, used by the coalition to put some pretty ugly stuff through. But I feel like we've, you know, the country has spent 10 years or more going backwards on this stuff mm-hmm. or at least in neutral on this stuff. So, I mean, I talk to people about federal politics since, since the election and people have a smile on their face and a real sense of hope and expectation that we can finally start moving forward and moving forward rapidly, you know, on renewable energy, on climate targets, yep. on anti-corruption laws, on mm-hmm. um, hopefully we can move Labor on some pretty core human rights things like, delivering justice for First Nations peoples and yep. moving, getting away from some of the, the, the 
the really brutal way in which our immigration laws have been been enforced in this country. Well, that's right. And maybe... There's been some wins so far, um, of course, with the uh, Murugupan family and uh, the, uh, the Tamil asylum seekers. Um, you know, that, that was good news. So, and I, I read today as well that uh, in the issue of social justice for women, the uh, Albanese government's given uh, charity status to the Grace Tame Foundation. So things are slowly, slowly changing, which is good, I think, David. Yeah, and, and the other thing is we want to get a lot... It may seem like we want to do a lot quickly, and the Greens do. We have a lot of stuff that we want to move on quickly. Yeah. And, and the one good reason to do that is that when you get a new government, that kind of reformist zeal, mm -hmm. uh, that passion to, to do what you saw in opposition as essential, mm -hmm. it can kind of sort of, you know, wash away a bit once they have more time with their hands, uh, you know, on, in, in the funds, in Treasury, more time sit there and get this expectation of power. So what we want to do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, and, and we're not going to apologise for it. We, no. We are doing it in an environment where I think um, the country wants us to do that. We have a receptive government who we're happy to work with and we're going to push them where we need to to make it better. Well, I look forward to it, David, and I look forward to talking to you further about a, uh, a more progressive Australia as the, the months and the years tick by. Thank you very much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it, David. You and I could talk uh, politics all day, I'm sure. <laughs> but we'll leave it for now. Um, thank you again. Congratulations on becoming uh, another uh, Australian Green Senator. I think the country will be better off for your input at a federal level. You did so well in New South Wales um, and, you know, I'm on the record of of, of praising you um, a great deal for, for holding New South Wales politicians to account and I'm sure you'll do that at a federal level as well. Thank you. Cheers, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Um, always a pleasure to speak. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning, all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Uh, it was great chatting uh, with the new Green Senator, um, a very powerful man now um, insofar as federal politics is concerned, David Shoebridge. Anyway, if you missed that conversation, which I think is really important, uh, podcast will be up a little later on the, uh, the Facebook page. Give us a, a like and follow there, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Well, more strikes could be on the way for Sydney after the state government lost a crucial Fair Work Commission battle against the rail union. The commission ruled in favour of the rail, tram and bus union in a massive blow for the government. This is in New South Wales, of course, which wanted to stop the union from causing more disruptions to the rail network. Now, the Rail, Tram, Bus Union Secretary, the RTBU, their boss, Alex Classen, said no further action at this stage is planned, but last month... Of course, he warned that more strikes would be on the cards if the government didn't bend to their demands. Now, Mr Classen said, we've won in the commission, but we still don't have a commitment the government will make the safety changes required to the new inner city fleet and confirmation that any changes made won't come at the expense of workers' pay and conditions. Now, we do know, in fairness, the Perrottet government has committed $264 million to changes to the fleet, including the union's main demand to change the new CCTV cameras to allow guards to manually check the sides of trains. Now, the government wanted the union to take the pay deal before signing off on the train alterations. That was an ultimatum the union refuses to accept. Now, Transport Minister David Elliott, who's currently on leave, said yesterday, Naturally, I'm disappointed at the decision given that I had a general agreement with the union two months ago. I appeal to them to consider commuters and the fragile economic recovery. Now, the Commission ruled the government failed to provide the strike endangered commuters. While the union has worked fairly constructively with the government, in particular David Elliott, a refusal to concede by the Employee Relations Minister Damien Tudhope and the Treasurer Matt Keane earlier this year was seen by the union as a blow to their negotiations. Anyway, watch this space. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul. 
All right, welcome back all. Thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, there's a staff exodus that is closing doors at a number of preschools around New South Wales. And under the radar staffing crisis has hit our preschools. Apparently, a lack of teachers has forced some centres to close their doors and even turn families away. Now, data's revealed more than 3,200 early childhood educator roles are vacant across the state. That's according to online listings, with one national provider confirming 10% of its workforce is still missing. Meanwhile, union data reveals over a third of preschool teachers plan to leave the profession soon, with low pay and excessive workloads the main reason for the exodus. Now, educational leader at Lane Cove's Birralee Preschool, Tash Smith, well, she spoke to News Corp over the weekend and said the situation had worsened in the last couple of months. Uh, She told the newspaper we've had to completely close some of our eight classrooms a handful of times because we simply didn't have the staff and the casual pool was dry. Miss Smith also said, we've had to send emails to parents and say, sorry, we're closed this week, don't come in, which is unheard of. Uh, Now, Miss Smith said educators in her industry were fatigued and feeling undervalued and COVID and the flu was also taking its toll. Now, she said strain and exhaustion is resulting in staff mental health days, which we've never seen before. Meanwhile, Good Start Early Learning Carlton teacher Sonia McLeod, she also spoke to the media over the weekend. She said the crisis was being felt across the industry. Miss McLeod said, and I quote, I think it's a combination of things like pay and conditions, people falling sick and COVID causing delays in training that have all hit at the same time. Unlike the teacher shortage plaguing primary and high schools, early learning centres don't have the option to leave children unsupervised, of course. However, around 15% of the state centres have been issued a temporary waiver exempting them from the usual child-to-care ratios set by national regulators. Kate Damo, who's from the Independent Education Union of Australia, the Early Childhood Services Organisation, well, Kate says teachers are working 10 hours a day. They don't even get 30 minutes for lunch and they don't get school holidays off because they're working in vacation care. Meanwhile, another union, the United Workers' Union, found 37% of early childhood educators did not plan to stay in the industry long term, with 26% planning to quit within the next 12 months. Now, that is not a good indictment on the industry. Meanwhile, of course, the New South Wales government is hoping that a $281.6 million boost to the sector could be the solution. Watch this space. Now, we'll put a a post of this story up on the Facebook page. Uh, Please let me know your experience. Maybe you have children in childcare. Perhaps you're an early childhood educator. I'd love you to let me know on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning, brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Well, it was a good weekend for former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. She, her charity, or her foundation to be more exact, finally achieved charity status. Now, the foundation established by the former Australian of the Year, the Grace Tame Foundation, aims to support victims of the kind of sexual abuse that stole her own childhood. But we know for nearly a year, the former Scott Morrison government held back on approving it as a charity. Now, it was revealed yesterday the Grace Tame Foundation was finally recognised by the new Albanese government as a charity on July the 1st. The recognition was a huge turnaround for sexual assault survivor and victim Grace Tame, whose strained relationship with former Prime Minister Scott Morrison generated controversy. Now, last night I spoke to uh, the Assistant Minister for Charities, Andrew Lee, Now, he confirmed that both he and Amanda Rishworth, who's the minister, the social services minister, took around 
six weeks to grant deductible gift receipt status to the Register of Harm Prevention Charities after a rigorous approvals process. Now, Mr Lee told me the extraordinary delay in approving the status was politically motivated, while Ms Rishworth described in the paper yesterday the Foundation as an incredibly deserving charity. Now, Grace Tame is the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Foundation, which applied for DGR status on July the 14th last year, back in 2021. Charities benefit from the classification because donations over $2 are tax deductible. Now, her partner, Max Heary, is an executive director and included on its advisory panel is Let Her Speak campaign founder and prominent advocate Nina Funnel. Its aim, according to the website, is to campaign for and help fund initiatives which work to prevent and respond to sexual abuse of children and others. Now, we know Miss Tame survived years of grooming and sexual abuse as a teen and became the Australian of the Year in 2021 in recognition of her advocacy for victims publicly. The former coalition governments did not approve the Foundation's charity application for 44 weeks. Of course, her campaign, this is Grace Tame, to change laws in Tasmania that gagged rape victims from telling their stories was another big reason she was given the Australian of the Year gong. Uh, Miss Tame claimed publicly that she'd been threatened that if she didn't support Scott Morrison, the former government would not support the foundation. At the time, Scott Morrison said this was not the case. A government source said approvals for the charity status usually take, quote, a few months. Now, Amanda Rishworth said she was committed to working closely with victim-survivor advocates and wanted to hear their voices, including Miss Tame's, in policy development. Now, Andrew Lee said the recognition was long overdue. Last night, he said to the program, it's just one of the multiple harm prevention charities that should have received deductible gift recipient status months ago, yet it was blocked by liberal ideologies. That's Andrew Lee. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Paul in the morning brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. You can check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Let's have a look at uh, some of the police stories from the weekend. Well, sadly, a man was shot dead by New South Wales police after he allegedly stabbed two people in a domestic violence-related incident at Nowra, Nowra on the south coast of the state. Police were called to a unit on Albert Street just before 12.30pm. And this happened on Saturday night following reports of a stabbing. Now, police arrived at the unit block to find a woman had been stabbed in the neck, while a man had also injuries consistent with stab wounds. Police sources said the man allegedly responsible for the stabbings then came toward officers with a knife as they began to provide assistance to the injured people. Now, Detective Superintendent Kevin McNeil said when he threatened police, one of the officers discharged their firearm. Now, he would not confirm how many shots were fired, saying it would make up part of their investigation. Police, of course, performed CPR until paramedics arrived. However, the alleged knife man could not be revived. Now, the two people who were stabbed in the alleged initial incidents remain in hospital, the woman, in a serious condition. Now, it's understood four officers were present at the time of the incidents and they were treated for shock. And, of course, an investigation is now underway, a critical incident investigation, which is standard practice every time police are involved in a shooting. Meanwhile, three men have been charged over an alleged attempt to smuggle $150 million worth of coke and ice into Sydney from the United States. Now, this very successful strike force, Walla Mulla, 
which is a partnership between New South Wales and Federal Police. Well, that was launched back in June to investigate the importation of illicit drugs into New South Wales. They targeted an alleged shipment that arrived in Sydney last month based on intelligence from US Customs. Police allege 230 kilograms of methamphetamine and 1.2 kg of coke worth $150 million were located concealed inside machinery. Police conducted a controlled delivery to a Preston's business last Saturday where they alleged two men, aged 21 and 22, attempted to access the consignment with an angle grinder, of all things. Now, both men were refused bail and they will reappear in court on August the 25th. So there we go. There's just a a little bit of news from police and the courts. Uh, Meanwhile... I don't know whether you saw it last night, but there was a story on uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and in particular a focus on, uh, well, there was a bit of a focus, I guess, on the First Lady, Jodie Hayden. Well, a story over the weekend that raised my interest. Fresh from her First Lady tour of Europe, Jodie Hayden has revealed how the trip brought them closer together and her fears for his safety on a top-secret visit to war-torn Ukraine. I'd been doing so well all day in preparation for him going. She says the moment she farewelled Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, there were some hugs and some embraces and we got outside and the car's waiting and suddenly it hits me that he's actually going to a war zone. But I'm just so grateful that he's home safe, as is the rest of his team. Uh, As I said, in a wide-ranging interview with Seven News political editor Mark Riley, which aired at 7 o'clock last night on the Spotlight program, Miss Hayden talked frankly about the pair's relationship. The 44-year-old described her anguish at finding out Mr Albanese, 59, was in a car crash and how the January 2021 incident was a defining moment in their budding relationship. Well, I can recall speaking to Anthony Albanese just a week, uh, well, was it a week or maybe even a few days after the accident? Um, uh, As you know, I spoke regularly uh, when Anthony Albanese was Labor leader and federal opposition leader. He and I'd speak on, uh, well, almost weekly on the program at the old joint. And I spoke to him about the accident and he told me very clearly... Um, explained to me that he himself thought that was it. You know, he was rattled by it. It was quite a serious accident there in Marrickville. Anyway, Jody says, when I got to the accident and I saw the car before I saw Anthony, I remember thinking at the time, this can't end well. And that overwhelming sense of, what if I lose him? And I knew that then, yes, that I loved him and that I loved him deeply. And while the months since the May election have only brought them closer together, Miss Hayden last night said it was a nudge from the French that showed the couple should hold hands more. Asked about the moment French President Emmanuel Macron took her hand in footage that went viral, she said it was very French. Anthony doesn't do that. I might have to have a word (laughs) to him about it, she said. The financial services worker and Mr Albanese met in Melbourne in March 2020 and quickly bonded over their love of the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Of course, Anthony Albanese divorced his former wife, Carmel Tepet, in 2019. Uh, Albo at the time spoke of the personal support he receives from Jody, and I have Nathan, my son, and of course, the first dog, Toto. The Labor man also fielded questions on the loyalty of two-time election loser Bill Shorten, whom he said he was assured there would be no more leadership challenges. He's had two shots at the election and wasn't successful, Albo said of the Government Services Minister. He is now a member of my cabinet and he's doing a great job and I'm very confident that he'll be a constructive member of my team. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Visit them online, psychologyservicesnewsouthwales.com.au. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. It is the 11th day of July. Well, some COVID-19 news from the weekend, and millions of us will be able to gain access to life-saving antiviral treatments for COVID-19, even if we don't have an underlying medical condition, as case numbers and hospitalisations continue to soar. Now... 
every person over the age of 70 will be able to get a script from their GP for the oral treatments at an affordable rate under the PBS, the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, from today. While the risk factor threshold for younger people has also been lowered. Now, under this expansion, Australians over 50 can access the drugs if they have two or more risk factors, such as obesity, asthma, heart conditions, or diabetes, with the age lowered to 30 and over for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, there are currently almost 300,000 active COVID-19 cases in Australia, including 3,977 people in hospital, of which 141 are in intensive care and 31 of those are currently on life support ventilators. The oral antivirals, uh, Legevrio and Paxlovid, I'll say those again, Legevrio and Paxlovid, have been shown to be effective in the early treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults who are at increased risk of progression to hospitalisation. The drugs normally cost $1,000 per treatment, but under the PBS, the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, they will cost as low as $6.80 for concession card holders and $40 for others. Previously, the antivirals were, the, were only available to people aged over 75 with at least one underlying condition, or 65 and over with two risk factors. Australians 18 and over who are moderately to severely immunocompromised were also eligible, and this remains unchanged, importantly. Now, Federal Health Minister Mark Butler said increased access to the treatments would help ease pressure on the health system at a time when COVID-19 cases and hospitalisation numbers were climbing. The minister over the weekend said these oral antivirals dramatically reduce the risk of severe disease, particularly for older Australians, and will help keep people out of hospital. Mr Butler said people could get antivirals after speaking to a doctor, but they needed to act fast. He said, speak to your GP and make a plan for what you will do if you get COVID so you can start taking antivirals as soon as possible after your positive result. Cootamundra grandmother Kerry Hawking is one of thousands of Australians who has benefited from the antiviral treatment. After New South Wales Health detected poor oxygen results, they connected Miss Hawking with a doctor and her GP prescribed antivirals. She said at worst she would describe her symptoms as a bad cold and she recovered in around about five days. So that's an important update on COVID treatments. Okay, millions of Australians will gain access to life-saving antiviral treatments for COVID-19 from today even if they don't have an underlying medical condition, as unfortunately case numbers and hospitalisations continue to soar. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Visit online psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, as the cleanup continues from last week's flood events, uh, there was further tragedy over the weekend. Unfortunately, a helicopter pilot was killed in a fiery crash in remote bushland. He's been remembered as a gem of a man. He's from Cat Eye, and his name is Carl Herps. Now, he was flying his Bell 206 long-range chopper near South Maruta around the flood-affected areas on Saturday morning when it crashed near a place called Tough Hill Lane. Now, Mr Herps was a well-respected pilot in New South Wales, known in the community for his love of flying and, importantly, as a great community ambassador, he assisted with numerous flood relief efforts. Now, family friends paid tribute to Mr Herps and his loved ones. One friend said they are such a beautiful family that do so much for the community. He loved flying his helicopters and was always helping when the fires went through, plus floods in the Hawkesbury area. 
Well, police, ambulance, Polair and New South Wales Rural Fire Service, along with a Westpac rescue helicopter, were deployed to the wreckage, but the dense bushland and flood-impacted terrain made access a headache. Now, what I did see on Saturday night was some exclusive vision from the Channel 9 news helicopter pilot. Now, he landed after spotting the smoke in Katai. He landed, what, probably just a couple of minutes after the fatal helicopter accident. And unfortunately for him, and he spoke brilliantly and um, and very candidly over the weekend that he knew Mr Herps and was aware of the helicopter that he was flying and had previously been involved in work with him, being, you know, both being pilots. It was awful. It really was. Helicopter safety experts from the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, well, they launched an investigation and will examine the... Well, they were examining the crash site yesterday and uh, the scene remained under police guard over the weekend. The Bell long-range choppers are common and used, of course, for firefighting, photography, news coverage and also hired as charters. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, what a shame. I mean, a bloke that's given so much to the community, sadly dying in this horrific helicopter accidents over the weekend. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Monday morning. Great to have you company wherever you're listening to us. Maybe on starterfm.com.au, maybe on the iHeartRadio platform, on TuneIn, or perhaps you're listening back to the Prawncast, the podcast. Great to have you with us. And we do it thanks to our sponsor, Psychology Services New South Wales. Uh, if you could, check them out. PsychologyServiceNewSouthWales.com.au I'll speak to the owners over the coming weeks and we'll uh, find out exactly what kind of services they offer. They're uh, involved in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, of course, and uh, they offer some wide-ranging mental health services and in particular focusing on men's mental health, which is important. Okay, um, I don't normally get involved in the... Uh, hang on, who am I kidding? Of course I get involved in political gossip. I read the uh, the source column, as I usually do on a Sunday, in the uh, the Daily Telegraph. Uh, there was a bit of a story yesterday about uh, the man from Bega who, uh, you know, uh, quit New South Wales politics, had a crack at a federal level, but didn't get very far. I speak about the bloke who made a mess of transport in New South Wales, Andrew Constance. Apparently, according to the source... S-A-U-C-E Andrew Constance is quote not done yet with politics while he took a gamble on winning a federal seat and lost but Liberal Party sources claim former New South Wales Transport Minister Andrew Constance is not done yet with politics I would have thought he'd learned his lesson Anyway, the fresh gossip around Canberra last week was that the man known as Bega that's, is that his nickname, is it? All right. Anyway, he may be among those putting their hands up for the Senate's should rumours Maurice Payne is standing down turn out to be true. Constance, who missed out on the seat of Gilmore by... Look, he, he got close. He missed out by some 373 votes. Remember when he appealed uh, to the Australian Electoral Commission for a recount and it was knocked back. But anyway, he only, miss, only just missed out. It was won by Labor MP Fiona Phillips. And he is regarded by his supporters as a talented operator, having managed the difficult transport portfolio as a Berejiklian government minister. Regarded by his supporters as a talented operator. Uh, well, the person that writes this uh, column, I think, I mean, she's from News Corp, so I think she's, <laughs> I think she has her LNP coloured glasses on. But anyway. He is not without critics, with his political rivals noting how he declared he was quitting politics after the black summer bushfires only to run for a federal seat. Well, you can include me in his critics because he made a complete balls up of transport for New South Wales and I don't care what anybody says. In fairness to the former Bega MP, he was being wooed by ex-Prime Minister Scott Morrison who was looking for a, quote, star candidate to reclaim the seat. A Liberal source who claims Payne has been telling people privately that she is going said Constance will have to join a flotilla of ex-politicians who would be putting their hands up should she vacate. 
Now, apparently names being bandied around include Fiona Martin, Dave Sharma, well, basically an unemployment queue of ex-Liberal MPs. And, of course, this is something that can't be job-shared. All right, well, we'll watch this space. Um, Also in the source over the weekend, while all the focus on the New South Wales government's overseas trade posts has been on John Barillaro, new details have emerged on just how lucrative the relatively new taxpayer-funded roles are. Buried in the documents released to State Parliament as part of the Upper House inquiry into the Barra appointment are the remuneration details for the UK trade post held by a bloke called Stephen Cartwright. His employment agreement shows taxpayers are paying Cartwright, you ready for this, $487,000 per annum, along with an annual allowance of $112,000 to offset costs such as housing, schooling and home leave flights. What a great gig. What a great gig. This, of course, is in addition to one-off relocation expenses of up to 60 grand paid as reimbursement against receipts of costs incurred for flights to London for employees and immediate family of up to four people. Temporary accommodation as well for up to three months, household goods shipment and incidental such as home, school search and tax advice. Like I say, nice work if you can get it. But maybe not for long, given Labor is considering scrapping the posts altogether should they win government next March. Now, Labor leader Chris Mintz apparently told the source over the weekend the UK trade post is an example of just how out of control things have become under this current government. The UK's post allowance alone is greater than the annual salary of a first-year police officer, a nurse or a teacher. Well, Minzy isn't wrong with that. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, well, that's it for today's Marcus Paul in the morning. All thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9 Australian Eastern Standard Time with all the news and your views. Plenty of content up on our Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning, for you to comment on. Please do so. We'll update, of course, any major news as it happens. And we always look forward to your comments and your feedback as well. If you want to send me an email, you can do that. Marcus.Paul at starterfm.com.au Prawncast drops a little later during the day and there'll also be a a separate uh, podcast of my uh, really important chat this morning, I think, uh, with David Shoebridge, the Greens Senator. Uh, Of course, he and his counterparts in the Senate particularly those on the crossbench, are vitally important for the Albanese government to pass any legislation. So uh, expect to hear more of my conversations with those that really hold the balance of power, including David Shoebridge, in the months and years to come on the program. Okay, uh, have a wonderful day. Uh, thank you again to all of those hardworking first responders, uh, the angels in orange, as I always call them, those that volunteer and work with state emergency services. We thank them very much for their hard work over the last week or so with the floods. Hopefully, as the cleanup continues and finishes, they get to put their feet up a little bit as well. OK, catch you tomorrow. Marcus Paul in the morning. You ain't heard nothing yet. Marcus Paul. All right, goody, goody. This will get you to the goody. This will get you to the goody.